Hi everyone, this is Brooke James. Welcome to The Grief Coach. Before we get into the episode today, I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone who has listened, shared, rated on Apple Podcasts. We hit a huge milestone uh, this past week of 25,000 downloads and now have an audience in over 65 countries, which is really a big deal for an independent podcast. As a lot of you know, it's just me. So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for your support and for listening. And I'm so glad that this is a valuable resource for so many of you. Keep sharing the podcast, write nice reviews only on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people looking for this type of content find it. And we'll get right into the episode. I am so excited for you to all hear this interview today. Today, we have with us Dr. Darian Sutton, an emergency medicine physician in Los Angeles and ABC News medical contributor. Darian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. This is exciting. I'm really, this is an important conversation and I've been looking forward to it all day. So thank you for having me. I have too. So let's get right into it. If you can introduce yourself to the audience, tell them a little bit about who you are, what you do, and then get into your grief story and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So my name is Dr. Darian Sutton. I'm an emergency medicine physician. I practice currently in Los Angeles, California, and I was born and raised in New York City. And my grief story, where do we start? Uh, My grief story starts at the first year of my medical training. That is what we call our intern year. And my grief story takes place in Central Park in the middle of New York City. I was actually with family and friends enjoying a jazz festival. It's kind of a, a requirement per se, if you are my father's child, to go to a jazz festival in the summer. Him and his brothers love jazz festivals and he brings my family and me to them and it's kind of grown to be what is the most pleasant white noise in my mind and I play it when I feel like I need to decrease my blood pressure but we were at this jazz festival and my father's brother uh, who was actually simply my father's best friend my uncle Ed he is a man that went to literally like primary education with my father and then to uh, middle school and then to college together and then eventually to law school together so Uncle Led is everything that an uncle is to me, and I have never known him any other way. We were walking up a hill in Central Park to get a spot so that we could have a nice view of the jazz festival on this beautiful summer day. And my Uncle Ed was walking behind me up a hill carrying two chairs, and I remember this like it was yesterday, and I heard a scream. And I turned around, and my Uncle Ed was on the ground having what I thought was a seizure. And for me, it was a moment where I paused and stopped and realized, okay, this is my first year of being a physician. What do I do? Or ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. Oh my God, this is my uncle. Oh my gosh, my family is on. Everyone's here. This is in the middle of a park. And I got down and assessed my uncle and realized it wasn't a seizure and that he didn't have a pulse. And it was In my mind, I think the first time I had actually physically done CPR on someone, I was that early in my intern year. I immediately started CPR and other people had come around to help in the middle of Central Park. And I remember watching the paramedics get there and taking over the CPR and applying an automated external defibrillator or what we call an AED to my uncle Ed in the middle of Central Park and shocking him and trying their best to defibrillate him and putting him in the ambulance and us rushing to the hospital on the west side of Manhattan. 
and sitting right outside the room, which was their rapid response room, we call it like our trauma bay in the emergency room. Well, I could hear them going through the protocols and the algorithms of what happens when someone's heart stops and knowing that every round that they went through, the percentage of the probability of my uncle Ed coming out of that room decreased significantly. Uh, And then it was a moment where there was a brief moment of silence and I couldn't really hear and the doctor had stepped out and asked my father, who was stoic and still just silent, if he would like to come in and watch what would be the last round of CPR for my uncle. And my father's such an incredible man who has such an awareness of this world and our transient space in it that he just, his his view of life and death is just something that should be written about separately. But he calmly walked in um, to that room and I did not want to see my uncle Ed and I stayed outside. And my father watched what was the last round of cardiopulmonary resuscitation for my uncle before his declaration of death. And watching and going through that really changed my entire perception of the field that I chose to go into. And it is what I think about to this day. Every single time I have a new patient that whose heart has stopped, I think about my Uncle Ed and it's a part of that trauma and that real PTSD in my mind of what could I do here that maybe I didn't do before. And it's, um, I still haven't gotten over it. So that is my grief story. <laughs> I've never shared that publicly and I appreciate you for creating space for that. Thank you so much for sharing it. And actually just so the audience has context, I, I followed you for a long time. I'm a big fan. I love the way that you display medical information. You make it very accessible. We'll connect everyone to you in the show notes and when it's going out on social. But I had noticed you talking about grief and that you never said why, but you write about it so beautifully and you speak about it so beautifully. And so I figured I'll just DM him and see what happens, which is how I run the podcast. And so I just want to thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And I'm really excited for this conversation of how this has shaped you as a medical professional, how it's changed your perspective and how you deal with patients and families. So thank you. Can you talk a little bit about how this experience has changed the interaction with patients and families? Because I think as the patient and the family seeking for myself with my experience, I started the podcast because of my father's death, but have seen cancer a few times in my family. And you see it probably on your patient's faces. They're anxious. They don't know what to do. They're scared. And if you could share how this experience has shaped how you interact with patients and families, that would, I think, be really interesting to hear about. My story is my own personal story. I think every single medical provider has their own meaning behind what they do and why they do it. But mine, I really have to say that, you know, I think my grieving process hasn't stopped And I have to acknowledge that because so often we want to put things in discrete boxes and label them and move on from them. But my trauma from that moment, from that day is intertwined into my actions. And in many ways, you know, I'm very spiritual. In many ways, my uncle and all of the people in my life who have left this earth are kind of guiding me and to helping me understand how to help others leave this earth. And my perception of 
life and death is really painted by those experiences of the life and death of the people that I loved. So I think it really guides me in the way that I communicate about these issues with patients. And maybe in another life, I was a palliative care physician where I constantly did it. But I know that there is a reason why I could not simply be a palliative care physician for anyone who may not know. A palliative care physician is a physician who specializes in the parts of life where patients have illnesses that will likely lead to their demise. It doesn't mean that these patients will immediately pass or die, but it does mean that whatever they are battling will likely be their last health battle. And so those palliative care physicians are the people who are there to help communicate and explain the importance of comfort. It's a science that I think I didn't know about until I became a physician. And now that I know that it exists, I am an overutilizer of palliative care consults. But I say this to say is that people sometimes say, well, you have such strong feelings of grief and like you have such understanding of life and death. Why would you not go into that? And I don't have time to talk about why I'm still dealing with the trauma myself. And if I sat in that, then I would not be able to heal at all. It would not be a moment for me to be able to really get through it because I'm still fighting. And this is seven, six, six years later. And I'm still trying to understand and grapple with a science that I'm supposed to be mastering and and be communicating with people. So I think... That was a really long, circular way of not answering your question by simply saying that I'm still dealing with it myself and there is a silver lining in the fact that I think me being invited into other people's grieving processes is helping shed light on what I should and shouldn't do and what I could and couldn't do. And it's kind of a relationship that I'm building with patients when I'm talking about these issues. And and they never know that I'm also sitting there trying to learn as well. And I think that's what makes me be better. Yeah. (laughs) I think there's so many things that you just said that I would love to dive a little bit deeper into. But one thing that we see time and time again with grief is no one really talks about it. So we don't have models for how to do it and how to process. And what does that look like? Are we doing it right? It sounds like that's what you found. Is there anything that you've found that's been really helpful in kind of working through it? Because working through it is hard and it takes a lot of energy. It's not fun, but that's been particularly helpful in your situation if there's something you feel comfortable sharing with us. Well, I think that every single person, for me personally, how I deal with it is how my personality reacts. I'm the kind of person where, and I've always believed this, that if you can help someone find their light, it can help you find yours. And it is a central, it is that, that idea is central to everything that I do. Like if I figure out how to help you find your light, then maybe it would shine some light in mine. And it's, it's, just, it's, it's not just in the grand way where I'm having deep conversations about life and death, but even in the simplest ways when I'm grabbing a cup of coffee and I may notice that someone is having a dark moment. And if I can come in there watching the customer before me be really angry and just try to provide a moment, I feel like even if I'm in a bad moment, seeing someone else find their light in that moment will help me get out of mine. A lot of this is my spiritual understanding of my place in this world, but also my mom used to always have these ideas of of karma and understanding and karma not 
I don't want to say karma because karma is in that way where you're waiting to get something back, I feel sometimes, or it can be or it can be misinterpreted that way. I really feel like the true understanding of karma is that presence, that idea that if you let someone um, get to that higher level without expecting anything, then maybe in the offshoot, you will receive some light and it will allow you to step into something that gives you a better understanding. I think that's the that's what I that's what I mean when I say things like karma. But yeah, I think for me it's really personally checking in with myself and realizing that I do not have to follow any guidelines. I do not have to follow any rule books and I have to accept that some days are just really bad days. <laughs> and detaching is really great for me. I'm a big proponent of mini breaks and many many moments where I'm like, you know what, today I'm not gonna do anything. And honestly, I've lost a couple of opportunities doing that, but also I'm like, well, it felt really good not to do that. <laughs> so I think checking in with myself constantly and stopping trying to push and wait for the, and trying to push through to the next thing and just enjoying the process. Yeah. And I think letting ourselves rest is something that, like I'm working on this with my therapist that she's like, you're bad at resting. And do I deserve rest? Like all of that stuff. And yeah. I, I think that because our society, it's focusing on what are you doing? How are you moving forward? All of this, that when you tell people you're resting, which is so important just for our general health, but in the grieving process, they're like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so exactly. I'm so glad that you're a big proponent of that because it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and you know, and even therapy is fantastic. And I'm I'm a user of therapy, but also like sometimes there are things for me that I can't get from therapy. I think sometimes being a physician and being a highly trained physician, I know some tactics that are utilized in therapy because I use them myself in clinical medicine. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, is that or you? And then I find myself just interpreting their clinical practice, and I'm like, I'm not doing this well. I'm not doing this well. I'm trying to take a test at this point. So I think that. Therapies, I, I love the therapy also, and I really focus on the, the importance of checking in with oneself. It really is a big deal to do that and find those moments of, of peace. Yes, absolutely. I would just like want to take this moment to remind listeners that no matter how far along you are in your grief journey, like I'm early, my dad died not even two years ago, and your uncle died, you said six, seven years ago, that it doesn't stop you still need to continue to check in with yourself so just want to take a moment Absolutely. to remind people that <laughs> and there's so i've seen so many people experience death i have been honored to be a part of last moments of patients but also watching their families deal with it and i think the biggest thing that people battle with is wondering how they're supposed to feel and that is something that is so pervasive and common when people experience death of someone that they love that is close to them. They say to themselves, is it okay to smile at this moment? Is it okay? Should I cry at this moment? And I know that when we experience it individually, it's not like it's common, but for someone now who has had the honor of being a part of so many stories where people have left this earth, I realize that everyone is left asking that question. Well, what am I supposed to feel? And that's where I step in and I'm like, you are supposed to feel exactly how you feel right now. And you are okay in whatever emotion you are experiencing. And that's also something that is really hard to grapple with and understand. Because I watch people wonder if they can laugh at a joke 
in a dark time or if it's okay to cry when they're supposed to be happy. And that is what grief is. It's that confusion of not being able to control your emotion. Absolutely. And that's such a beautiful way to put it. And I'm just thinking back on when we did hospice at home for my dad who had bile duct cancer, which, you know, most people do not live through. And our whole family was there and he was upstairs. He'd be sleeping, resting and reflecting on those times that were so hard, but that we can really come together in and that support of being with each other. And when we would laugh, like you have this, like, am I allowed to do that? And giving yourself the permission and the grace to feel however you feel is just so critical. So that's so kind that that's the advice that you're giving to family. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not a specialist at all. I think for me, I'm just, um, really blessed to be able to be able to be in that room, to be in those positions, to just honestly connect with people. But I I have to also guard myself because I know that I am very emotional. I still um, cry when patients pass. And I know that in many ways, I'm like, I need to stop. I need to separate myself. I can't be this emotional every time. But in other ways, I'm like, this is just who I am. (laughs) I'm glad that I'm I'm not hiding it. This is just who I am. Well, and empathy is such a skill. I I mean, I don't know if you know, it's like I started crying when you were telling the story about your uncle. And I think tapping into empathy, like it's respectful to other people. So that, or that's how I think of it as a very person. <laughs> yeah, I want to be respectful, but I also want to give people their space and time. I feel like I want to be that strong support where, you know, people are grappling with the earth, trying to figure out the answer and understand why this is happening to them. You very much have to be aware of the surrounding emotion. You don't want to cause more calamity. So sometimes I'm like, okay, I'm getting emotional. Let me separate myself from this and come back. So kind of tangential to that situation, Uh something that I speak about a lot on the podcast is the importance of talking to your family about where is their will, talking to them about what are their advanced directive plans. And being that you're a medical provider, I would love to get the other side of this conversation because I think it's so important. What is it like for you and for your team when people do not have these documents in place? Does it add to confusion? Just would love to hear about what, what maybe also if you could speak to how they're beneficial to you. It adds to so much confusion. I've had many cases, especially during this pandemic where people have been abruptly assaulted with the end of life and realized that they had not had a discussion at any point about what this person would want. And my partner thinks I'm being morbid when I talk about what I would want at my end of life. But I think constantly being made aware of the fact that these conversations do not happen. So I think end of life conversations should happen at any point. Whenever you feel comfortable with someone, if you have someone close to you that you love, especially with the people that have taken care of you when you were a child, your guardians, your parents, your your siblings, anyone close to you who you think would be called upon in the event that you would have an emergency where you weren't able to communicate for yourself, I would want that person to know what I would want. And my twin brother, as you know, is a physician. So we have these conversations often. People think we are morbid. People think that we are not normal. But he knows exactly what I would want in the event that I wouldn't be able to communicate with myself and for myself. And I know what he would want. And I I think that it's number one, Having these conversations is difficult, but they shouldn't be preserved 
to be added on to when you get a diagnosis. They should be done when you're casually talking. And although, yes, it can be morbid, I think it can take a lot of fear out of those moments in the future. Because inevitably, we all die. And we don't have a choice of when that happens. And so making that moment as easy as possible, I think is paramount. As far as patients who get a terminal illness or a diagnosis that will likely be their last diagnosis, I think it's really important when those moments happen as physicians to involve people like palliative care because people have this misconception that palliative care, like I said at the beginning, is just for the very last day. Palliative care is supposed to jump in. No, palliative care services, which are available at the majority of hospitals, are really incredible services that help provide comfort and maintain care. And I personally believe, I really believe this, that they provide quality care that extends outcomes more than people realize. I think when they come in the room, people think, oh my gosh, this is it. They're just going to unplug, unplug everything and they're going to leave me here with this palliative care doctor and I'm not going to get any kind of treatment. I really believe that the palliative care teams, they make patients and they, they make patients realize the level of comfort that they want so clearly that these patients often have better outcomes than they would have if they didn't involve palliative care. So I think number one, that is, if you can't uh, have access to palliative care or you don't have the type of phys- uh, hospital available, naming people who would be in charge of you and your, and your goals of care, if you would not be able to speak for yourself is really important, especially if you have a large family. <clears throat> Recently, I was, had a patient who uh, presented to the hospital, not really responsive, hypoxic, low oxygen levels requiring intubation, but also over the age of 85. And I have to ask the question, you know, before I sedate this patient even further and intubate them and place a breathing tube into their windpipe and put them on medications that basically sedate them to the point where they're not able to communicate, I know for a fact I am adding a risky procedure, although relatively simple for me to do, would make and change their outcome drastically because over the age of 80, I know that a part of reassessing and taking this tube out of their windpipe, you have to wake them up. And oftentimes that can be really difficult for patients who are elderly. And so I had conversations with this patient's children and, and all three of them, although all had the goal of providing the most amount of love and care, had completely different ideas of what their parent would want. And I had to end up going with the one who actually had physical established power of attorney at the end of it to be able to provide the care that was wanted, which ended up actually being to intubate this patient, which some people may have disagreed with. But this power of attorney said, no, this is what they last wanted the last time we spoke. They would want this right now. And I went with that. I think if that patient was able to wake up and talk, they would have been able to provide a lot more clarity. And I think that the, the, the real important conversation probably did not happen between all of them in the way that they perceived it in their mind, you know? And focusing on the idea of what would this person want, not what you would want. That is the hardest part for many people to grapple with, too. So hard. And, like, I did it. My dad, specifically, who that's who I talk about the most on the podcast, was, like, he would joke, like, when I get too old, I'm going to pull a Thelma and Louise. <laughs> and I was like, can you not say that? Like, it makes me upset. But then I knew that his biggest fear was living, as he called, like, an invalid. And he asked me when he was in hospice and he was on morphine, he said, am I an invalid? And I said, 
no, like you got in the chair today, dad, <laughs> but like, <laughs> I'm so grateful for the hospice nurses that we had out in Connecticut who were able to, and they complimented us. They said, most people are too scared because this is scary to actually go through with the conversations of what the patient has said that they want. And so we started morphine and increased dosages under obviously the care of and advisement of hospice nurses. And they said a lot of people are too scared to do this or they haven't had the conversation yet. And so it's ultimately not what this person wanted who hasn't been able to speak for themselves. And so just to underscore that these conversations are so important, like it, in your experience of when you've seen families and you're treating one patient, like when they've talked about it, I would assume it goes more smoothly. And if a condition oh. changes, they know how to react. Absolutely. I think that for the patients who have clear definitive goals, it takes the weight off of them. They feel as though they are just carrying out a message of that patient. They are not physically making the decision themselves. When the conversation has not been had, they have to take ownership of that decision. And then they feel that they will sit with guilt if they make a mistake. And that is, that is, you know, we talk about high pressure situations like being a doctor. Being a patient, making that decision is more high pressure than anything I'm going to do my day. And I have to realize that as a physician when I'm asking that question to make sure that I'm being compassionate when I'm waiting for the answer, stepping out of the room, giving people time. Because I'll be honest, I think sometimes as physicians and providers, we sometimes are like, well, just we need an answer. And I'm like this. Listen, I respect it. If I had to make that decision right now about my my parent, then I think I would be distraught as well. And you want to make sure that you feel like your your parent is your your loved one is being subjected to a multiple choice quiz, and everything that you have valued in your entire life, your most important person, is one of these choices, and you have to pick between one of them. And if you get it wrong, then you sit with that for eternity. And I think that is something that as providers we forget that people are dealing with when they're sought with these questions and they haven't had these discussions. So. I respect if the discussions haven't had. My goal is to make sure that if you can, to do it. <laughs> me too. And just as an aside, people who've listened have heard me talk about this before. People after my dad passed would be like, what can I do to help? You know, they're like, after yeah. And I'd be like, you can talk to your parents about their will. <laughs> and they were like, that's what? <laughs> like, that's what you can do. Because <laughs> like, it's so important. It's so, so important. I mean, honestly, I'm still trying to work through... I know it's difficult. It's not like a one-time conversation, too. And that's another thing that people have to realize is that it's most likely going to be a long-running conversation that will evolve throughout time. I'm very, and people are different. My dad is very clear with what he wants. He wants to be cremated. He wants to be placed in the Jones Beach Ocean. And he does not want to be in a bed for long periods of time. If that is an option, he would like the other option. He's very obvious and clear about it. My mom is probably, that's the conversation that's probably going to continue. I'm still working. We're still trying to figure out what this means. So I do respect that many people, it's not their fault if the patient themselves also doesn't uh, have a clear idea. Well, and we're also in a society where this is not an okay thing to talk about. Why would you talk about this? And I think people are worried that they're going to like jinx it or like bring in bad energy if they talk about it. But it's so important to talk about. I would love to, just wanting to be conscious of time, get to what we discussed about talking about COVID and we're in a pandemic. You are a medical professional. Would love to 
speak a little bit about and hear about some stories that you had shared with me previously about what it's been like as a medical professional. Like, it's hard for everybody, but you're seeing so much every day that if you can share what that's like for the audience, because I don't think that that's a perspective people are getting often. Uh, This past year has been one that I have grown You know, when you look at pictures of President Obama at the beginning and the end of his presidency, that's what I feel like. I feel like (laughs) I feel like I have aged at three times the rate. My telomeres are shortened. If I could have hair, it would be gray. I feel like I've gone through a lot emotionally this year with not just my own patients, but also my family. And then obviously I moved across the country with my partner. This year has been something, you know, it is People often ask me, you know, are you changed from the amount of death that you saw? And I have to say that death isn't really something that is new to me at this point, although this year I saw it at a higher rate. I think this year what really stuck with me and what is going to need therapy for me to work or I'm going to need therapy to work through is that pervasive fear. The diagnosis of COVID, people don't realize and people forget sometimes, is brand new. It does not come with a prescriptive prognosis. It does not come with a clear outline of events that happens after. If you realize I diagnosed someone with myocardial ischemia or heart attack, I can tell them this is where your heart attack is. This is the treatment. This is the percentage of people who have had this specific problem. And this is what the outcome could be. And this is, you know, I give them all of these prescriptive prognostic values and people can make better use of that information to be able to have a clear mindset of what their future is going to look like. I talked about something severe like a heart attack, but even with appendicitis, we know information every day with COVID-19 is something brand new. We're still trying to understand, A, how to treat it. We're still trying to figure out why it looks so differently from patient to patient. And as physicians, uh, we are operating based off of really strong guesses. And that is terrifying as physicians because that's not normal for us to do. We have different hypotheses walking around based off of knowledge that we already know, but we are building concepts on top of each other with a platform that is unstable of COVID-19. So that is, from a physician clinical standpoint, that is constantly anxiety provoking. And then also for the patients, when you get a diagnosis of COVID-19, the fear that patients deal with, the anxiety that you have to deal with, I don't become numb to it. I had a patient recently who was uh, relatively healthy, no primary health conditions before, and had recently been diagnosed with COVID two days ago. Nothing was abnormal other than the diagnosis of COVID. Great. You have a diagnosis of COVID. Good news is that your oxygen saturation is good. Your chest x-ray looks clear. You should isolate for 10 days at minimum and at least 24 hours after your last fever, and you will be okay to go. They were in a specific room, and I'll never forget, the next day, I got a patient uh, alert, and I see the room, and I go to the room, I open the door, and it's the same exact patient, and he is sitting there terrified, and he's just looking at me, and he's like, I, 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 you gave me the diagnosis yesterday, but what am I supposed to do? Do I sit at home by myself? I know that I'm supposed to sit here and isolate for 10 days. I don't know why this is making me emotional because I, I hate to see people in fear. But he said, I don't have anyone to call. I, I, I'm I just scared every time I turn around and I feel a, a palpitation or a heartbeat that goes out of place. Or if I get up in the morning and I feel a little short of breath, is how am I supposed to know? And I just felt so bad because I realized that 
this person knew how much I did not know. Although I could say, you're going to be okay, nothing is abnormal, this person knew that I wasn't able to put them in a discreet box. This person knew that they weren't for sure going to be done in 10 days. And I knew that at the seven to eight day mark, it may get worse. They may come in completely symptomatic, requiring supplemental oxygen and even an intubation and an ICU admission. And I did not, I could not say for sure if that wasn't this person's future, but this person had to sit with that fear. And that is what is traumatic to me. Helping people walk through that unstable level of fear constantly is really, really scary. And then on the converse, I have patients who come in months later, and this is the part of COVID that people don't talk about. The part that I like to define as, you know, not just the long haul symptoms, but the traumatic, the post-traumatic stress of COVID-19. Many people get to walk around feeling like every time they take a breath, they feel appropriately satisfied in terms of getting oxygen. COVID, you don't, you feel like you're suffocating. And I remember having this patient and this patient happened to be queer and we were talking about a lot of different things of life, but they were there for chest pain. And when we sat down, they were really honest. And they said, you know what? I'm just afraid. I have chest pain, but I know it's nothing wrong. But four months ago I had COVID and I could not breathe. And I am so afraid that that is going to come back that any moment I feel anxious, I feel like I'm having COVID again. And this person was having clear post-traumatic stress disorder from a, a torturing diagnosis and experience, although brief, of COVID-19. And there was no medication or intervention that I could do other than sit with them and acknowledge their concerns and their fear. But this is something that is going to take a lot of time and effort to get through. And so that is what for me is traumatic fear. Absolutely. And just I, like every time I cough, I'm like, oh my God, I have COVID. Like, Same. and, and <laughs> like, I go get tested like once a week and I have people in my family who are like, you're fine. What are you doing? And I was like, I yeah. need to know. Be yeah. And I think this fear is something so many of us are not used to living with. And we have this trust in our bodies that they are going to behave in a way that we want them to and protect us and the fear and the long-term effects of it are quite scary. I have someone I know who recently had a stroke and they had COVID antibodies. And so the doctors are saying this perhaps was caused by this. And I think so much of the fear is that we don't know. And there's not, as you were saying before, science to fall back on. I mean, we've learned so much in the past year. I would assume that you feel more comfortable in, mm -hmm. but I guess I don't know where I'm going with this. Do you have <laughs> um, um, any advice? It's exactly what it, it's the theme of COVID. We don't know where we're going. We don't know. That's where you do, were going. Uh, yes. Do, <laughs> do you have um, advice for young people? Because I think often, especially in the beginning, the advice that we were getting was, if you're young, you will be fine if you get it and seen time and time again, that, that is that is not always the case. Would you have advice for people and how to take care of themselves and any, not to scare people, but like if there's anything you can share about how this could potentially show up in the future, if you're comfortable sharing that or if you don't know enough, yeah. it's also fine. You know, I can talk about what I would do. I consider myself in the younger group uh, still. So, I mean, I love- Same, I'll, I'll you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but for me, if I were to get diagnosed with COVID-19, there's a couple of things that I would do to make myself feel sane. Because <laughs> I would probably have the same level of fear that that patient had who came in the next day. But I would get myself a pulse oximeter. I talked about this on Instagram really briefly. It is something really, really um, 
it, it is it is it is not cheap. It's like twenty dollars. I got one because you said to get one. <laughs> Have you not played around with it randomly and used it to make yourself feel sane? You know, you find it on Amazon. It goes over your finger. It's relatively. It's. It tells you the percent of oxygen saturation. You have to be cognizant if you have particular types of nail polish on, or if you have the syndrome called Raynaud syndrome. It may not be able to say the appropriate oxygen saturation that's actually in your body. But overall, I think it's something that would help me because. What I see from my experience this past year, the, the whole year of treating COVID, is the patients who are sick are the patients who need oxygen, the patients who are hypoxic. And so for me, if I had COVID-19, I would want to know that number. That is that, is that triage number. That is a number that we communicate with between triage teams and uh, other doctors to help people understand how severe someone's case of COVID is. That being said, COVID can become complicated and there can be other issues, especially if you have other primary health concerns. So obviously always talk to a physician, regardless of, of, of whatever I'm saying here, I'm just giving advice about what I would do. We're starting to understand that COVID also is a vascular disease and it's increasing clots and, and coagulopathy. So there's been a lot of discussion over managing the patients, not just in the hospital that we take care of, we kind of have a grapple or understanding on that, but also what we do on the outpatient end, the patients who don't need to come into the emergency room because they're relatively okay. There's a lot of discussion over using aspirin, a low-dose aspirin every day. I would probably talk to my doctor about that and the benefits of that because the idea is that COVID makes you hypercoagulable or increased risk of clotting. And so a lot of people will say, well, maybe a lot of primary care doctors I see are starting to give their patients low-dose aspirin. Now, any medication, even something like aspirin, which is over-the-counter, again, is something that you should talk to a primary care physician about or, or a primary care provider about. Um, but I, I find that maybe, you know, I would talk to my doctor about that. And then also beyond those two things, treating my symptoms. Uh, if I feel like I have a headache, treating that headache the same way I would normally treat a headache. If I feel like I'm congested, treating that congestion the same way I would normally treat congestion. And if I feel like I can treat my symptoms from the comfort of my own couch, doing just that and making sure that I do my best to not transmit this virus to anyone else. And then, of course, if you feel like your symptoms require the intervention of a medical provider like myself, do not feel afraid to step into an urgent care or to step into an emergency room. But yes, those are the couple of things that I would do if I was treating myself. I, everyone always wants to know, and I think that is what I would be thinking about right now. It'll probably evolve over time. Yeah, I mean, as we learn more. Yeah. So I think one thing that I'd love to get your perspective on, as this year, as you said, has been unlike any year most of us has ever seen. A lot of people recently especially are hitting COVID fatigue, and it's yeah. just at the time where yes, more people are getting vaccinated and that's amazing, but also the virus is mutating in a way that looks to be a lot more dangerous. So uh -huh. what advice do you have, have you seen of how do we start to put the collective among our own needs that we all have cabin fever and we want life to be as we knew it before, but any thoughts on that? I think for personally, I've got a lot of hope. I'm, as you can see, I'm an optimistic person. So I think by this spring, we're going to start to step into what will be our new normal. Current projections based off of the amount of people that are getting vaccinated right now show that this summer we could have 50 to 60 percent of the people in the United States population at least vaccinated. Other countries are, are exceeding us. Other countries are behind us. But I think that that gives me a lot of hope. When I look at variants, I say this all the time, but variants are to be expected as vi viruses naturally change throughout 
about time. And I think sometimes people don't realize COVID-19, I'll be honest, most likely is here to stay. We will be talking about COVID-19 in some respect until we all leave this earth. Other viruses similar to COVID-19 have taught us that in history. COVID-19 is a type of coronavirus that belongs to a family of coronaviruses that all still persist around us. And many people don't know, but The influenza A virus, for example, that commonly happens in seasonal bouts is a descendant of the H1N1 flu that caused the 1918 pandemic. And a lot of things have changed, including vaccinations and modifications in behavior that has led to the current perceptions of influenza A, which is just, oh, you have influenza A. And it's not the same perception of what people would have had when they had the H1N1 flu during 1918. So that just gives me a lot of understanding and and, uh, optimism about disease. This pandemic is a pandemic because our bodies are brand new to it. As we go through time, the population will increase their level of immunity based off of general exposure naturally, as well as vaccine exposure. And every time we are confronted with this virus, we will have higher levels of defense, surveillance, and understanding. And when, if you have any doubt about that, just realize this is not the first pandemic that we've gone through and we have develop incredible technology and vaccinations to make things of the past stay in the past. If you don't know what mumps is, it's for a reason. If you don't know what rubella is, it's for a reason. If you don't have specific concerns about HIV right now, it's for a reason. There have been incredible advancements in technology that have just honestly made health what it is right now. And I think people forget that we are constantly battling around different pathogens, including bacteria and viruses that we know about and that we treat and that we understand. And I think COVID-19 is going to jump into that box. So if people have feelings like they're going to uh, get cabin fever, I agree. I'm so tired of sitting in the house. I'm so tired of looking at my fiance. I love him, but I'm tired of it. (laughs) And I think that as we step into the spring, we're going to start to get to our new normal. So I'm just holding out for that. Me too. Me too. All right. We're coming up on the hour and I want to be respectful of your time. Uh So is there anything else that you want to share or dive into quickly? Thoughts on grief on the pandemic? I think just my main thing is helping everyone remember the vaccine is helping us prevent hospitalizations and deaths and mass and social distancing is helping us to prevent transmission. And we do these collectively together. We can stamp out um, and march down this hill of cases even faster. And I just, if we all just participate and think about what you can do to stop the transmission in your personal and professional life and advocating for those who may not have the opportunity to stand up for themselves and may not be as privileged as you. And so, yeah, that's what, that's what I would leave people with. Thank you so much. Um, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Do you want to tell people where to find you online if they are interested in hearing more from you? You can hear my intermittent random glimpses of ideas <laughs> on my Instagram, dr.darian, D-O-C-T-O-R dot Darian, D-A-R-I-E-N. My Twitter, Dr. Darian MD. Those are easy ways that you can <laughs> find me. And hopefully we, you and I will do this again soon. Yes, I would love to. I think it's so important for people to talk about this. I also was looking at my roster of guests I've had in the past and haven't had a lot of perspectives from men. So I'm really excited that got to do this and I've just like I've really enjoyed following you and seeing you online so I'm so happy that we got to do this today me too this is a pleasure thank you so much all right thank you so much thanks everyone for listening you can find us online at www.thegriefcoach.co and on social at that underscore grief coach and we'll talk to you soon